And the second thing was that the nose grew completely different. And then sometimes the last twin I did, they wanted the exact identical nose, but it's just not possible uh, to get it because the variation is so uh, 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 subtle that no matter what technique you use, it, there's always a difference in skin uh, elasticity or skin volume or a little bit curvature, etc. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. We're in the month of July and we're focusing on rhinoplasty for residents. It's brought to us by Medtronic. Everyone in the world knows who Medtronic is. So shout out to Medtronic. Thank you for enabling today's episode. My special guest today. So I'm not going to box him in into, into one area, but if I had to say the Utrecht questionnaire, you exactly know who I'm talking about. So this is a man who is internationally influential in rhinoplasty, otolaryngology, facial plastic surgery. It's a great honor and privilege to have Peter Lohaus on the show today. Peter, thank you. Thank you for having me. So Peter, if I look in your background, those stairs, I've seen them in so many webinars in the last two years. Where in the yes, world I, are you I, at the moment? I'm now in uh, Narden, Narden Vesting. It's a very small uh, town uh, in the middle of the Netherlands. And uh, it used to be a defensive city against the Spaniards. And uh, I'm right in the middle here. This is a very old building. Wow. So, Peter, I find you a, a very interesting um Person, and I've, I mean, I've, I've known you for many years, and we've. You, you, there's so many different parts to to who you are. So let's just try and for the for the listeners kick off and, and tell us a little bit. How who who is Peter, and how did you get to where you are in your life? Because you you mean you must have you've done lots of things, but what 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 give us a bit of your journey to where you are at the moment? Uh, well, let's skip all the schools, uh, etc. So when I was 17, 18, I went to med school. Um, I went to the United States on an on a exchange program that kind of influenced my choice for either ENT, head, neck or uh, neurosurgery. And then I came back. Um, I learned the American way. So I was a more serious guy. And then slowly I went into residency. I uh, uh, doubted about neurosurgery, but... Uh, in the end, this was better for me. I like the head and neck and also the kind of patients and the diversity in what we do. So I went into residency in Utrecht. There was a good res residency program with also a lot of uh, rhinoplasty. So that was the luck factor uh, regarding what I uh, am now interviewed for. And um, then I went from residency into head and neck in a cancer and uh, I went to uh, what I called the Ajax of uh, the head and neck which was the Netherlands Cancer Institute in Amsterdam. I stayed there since 2020 so I'm working there for since 2000 so I'm working there already for tw 22 years and uh, that was really a, a, a good center to do everything because no matter how crazy the cases, they were there. We started doing the reconstruction ourselves. So it was unlimited what you could learn. I still work there. 
then I uh, um, slowly went into um, academic medical center, which is also a big hospital. And there I picked up uh, the, the, the facial plastic surgery uh, together with Noel Trinity, you know him. Uh, I did that for a while and then I decided to go to a general hospital and to a private clinic. So to do uh, only aesthetic rhinoplasty and to set up a facial plastic surgery unit at this general hospital. And slowly that developed till I kind of left for uh, Zagreb. I kind of switched the general hospital. I stayed in the cancer center. I stayed in the, the aesthetic center for the aesthetic rhinoplasty. And then I uh, went to Zagreb where I started with Boris Filipovic, uh, a, a private clinic in order to slowly copy what I saw, what was really working well in the Netherlands, which was um, cases outside the hospitals towards uh, small centers divided over the country, which was cheaper, faster and better because uh, uh, doctors were starting to focus on a few such subjects. So also there we tried to develop hand wrist you know, with other doctors, of course, incontinence with the gynecologist and the urologist, uh, um, facial plastic surgery, uh, general plastic surgery. So we have certain areas where we work in and uh, we try to do it better because you just see more volume and you discuss with your colleagues. Uh, it's uh, multidisciplinary. Uh, we get headache surgery, all these things which are actually not so difficult. It's not the head and neck cases, uh, which I was used to do in the Netherlands Cancer Institute, but uh, like rhinoplasty is perfect for that. Incontinence is perfect. You know, you want to go in, see the doctor, have a surgery for uh, 40 minutes and you're done and you're cured, not waiting for a year, etc., etc. So that was kind of the journey uh, up till now. And um, since I was a resident, that was like 1994, I did rhinoplasty always. So uh, all, all these years I did rhinoplasty and slowly developed my skills. So that's like in total, I guess, 20, 28 years or something. So uh, wow. it takes a long time. Yeah, we're going to get into uh, your contribution to rhinoplasty because uh, there's a lot about that I want to chat to you about. But in terms of your patient profile that you see in Zagreb compared to you see in Amsterdam, how different is it? Uh, more or less, I see um, only aesthetic patients uh, with or without functional problems. So now I see only patients that really come for a more beautiful nose. And usually they have functional problems as well. But that's uh, um, what I do now. That slowly developed. In the beginning, it was more or less functional. And then uh, um, I saw also a lot of uh, um, patients that were for scan skin cancer reconstruction. So when they were missing half a nose or nasal wing or whatever, but I was, I was starting mixing it up, but now my business is um, functional and aesthetic rhinoplasty. And usually they come for the, the aesthetic part because they pay for the surgery. So, okay. I've got a couple more questions. Tell me, Last year, you became a somnologist. So tell me, what's a somnologist? A somnologist is a, you know, that's kind of funny story because <laughs> I did all these things, man, all these long surgeries. And then they tease me now that I'm a somnologist. 
But it's kind of fun because uh, a friend of mine, he was a head and neck surgeon, he started sleeping centers. And it's not that there are not sleeping centers in the Netherlands. It's like there were a huge amount of sleeping centers. I think it's 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 the best arranged uh, in our country comparing to United States, maybe Australia, etc. And uh, it was COVID time. It was COVID time. So um, that summer, uh, we decided in Zagreb that we wanted a sleeping center as well. And there, the somnology is kind of um, yeah, ruled by neurologists. And um, they do a good job. But, you know, what they do is CPAP. So there's no surgery. There's no uh, uh, drug-induced uh, sleep endoscopy. There's no hypoglossal stimulation. Uh, all these beautiful things, barbed wire, pharyngoplasty, is not there. So also the mandibular device was not uh, being treated. So we thought that that was a huge opportunity to kind of bring it all, you know, multidisciplinary. And, um, and that's what we started doing. But politically, it was kind of important to become a somnologist <laughs> because then you also did all the neurology and uh, pulmonology. And uh, so I did the exam and the exam was kind of hard, I must say. I studied like 120 hours, three, four books, but then I passed it. And now, um, well, we kind of use it to kind of set up the somnology better. Because if there's one thing which is good for you, except for a rhinoplasty, it's sleep, man. You know, eight hours of sleep, you start to appreciate that more and more. You feel better, your mood gets better, less hypertension, less cardiac problems, or atrial fibrillation is, well, it's at least half of it is related to uh, uh, poor sleep and sleep obstruction. And, um, well, especially for the sleep obstruction, that is what we see. And still the other stuff like insomnia, hypersomnia goes to neurologist. But, uh, um, you know, you get, you get a broader knowledge and uh, it's kind of interesting. And for the nose, well, we saw those patients already. I must say that for uh, the apnea, it's not so much related. You know, sometimes it makes the CPAP work better or it's more comfortable, of course. But uh, we did that already. But the, the complete knowledge about sleep uh, increased enormously. And since then, I really, really do my best to sleep at least seven hours every day because I'm sure that's a, that's a life changer, really. Now, that's cool, Peter. Congratulations. Adding to your PhD, adding that somnologist. But I'm sure, I mean, I remember speaking to Faisal a few years ago, and you said there's nothing better than a rhinoplasty in a good night's sleep. But Faisal said if you have a good rhinoplasty, it can be good for your sex life as well. So maybe they all add together, eh? <laughs> yeah, but he makes all these pointy tips. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Peter, well, I know off air we were chatting about you operating on twins from the same egg. Tell the listeners that story, please. Oh, that's kind of interesting. I, got, I think I have like five. And uh, all right, in, the, in uh, the Netherlands, there was a guy called Verwood. He was a professor in Rotterdam, and his, his PhD was about growing centers in the septum. And when you get a small trauma in a young childhood and also already birth is like a small trauma, that influences the way that uh, the, the skull and the nose start to growing. So dorsum, but also maxilla is all coming from these growth centers in part. Okay. Which means that if you have a one egg twin, which is completely identical with DNA, 
and something happens like a fall or uh, maybe uh, the, the birth was different etc it starts to diverse and and that's not only for the nose but also for the volume of the cheek light shadow etc and you have to see like this that sometimes one girl can end up much more pretty because all these different uh, uh, um, correlations are just much better. You know, what is beauty? It's like, yeah, it's the combination of things. And that was extremely interesting. So that was one. So that was my first twin that I did that two girls didn't look the same. One was much prettier. And the second thing was that the nose grew completely different. And then sometimes the last twin I did, they wanted the exact identical nose but it's just not possible uh, to get it because the variation is so uh, 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 subtle that no matter what technique you use, it, there's always a difference in skin uh, elasticity or skin volume or a little bit curvature, etc. So the first thing is that, that it, it changes the growth, that's one, and no matter uh, how identical they are. And the second thing is, as soon as it's changed, you can never make it the same anymore because it's it's the very the differences are so subtle that that just doesn't work also it, the face is different so the, the nose will never the same nose will never look the same in that different face also because the volume of the maxilla uh, is a little bit different it's kind of interesting no it's a, it's a humbling thing this rhinoplasty i did i did twin brothers very identical did almost exactly the same operation on them Two-year follow-up, and I think to myself, the first guy walks in, oh, beautiful result. Next guy walks in, I think, I cannot believe it. I operated them like a day apart, and the, the results were completely different. But anyway, yeah. I don't know. Rhinoplasty yeah, keeps yeah, you. I, I, saw, I see that too. It's uh, really interesting. So, you know, whenever you do something in rhinoplasty, there's also a little bit of luck factor that you kind of, uh, the gods help you to heal a little bit uh, in the right way. Because the material is different. It's very humbling. Okay, so so Peter, t changing track slightly, I want to chat to you a bit more about the Utrecht questionnaire. So all those years ago, did you at, at that time even remotely think it would have go around the world and be translated in so many languages, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, t tell us, t I mean, there's listeners from 70 countries around the world. So what I'd like you to do is is tell us about the study and the questionnaire and, and how people could possibly get a hold of it to download it and use it in their practices. Um, yes. So uh, it was like this. In the Cancer Institute, where I worked, we developed for laryngectomy, the, spe the speech prosthesis, right? That's, that's what uh, we developed together with a, a medical company. And what we did was like this. We, we developed it together with them. We did the research. And as soon as the product came out, and uh, it's, it's world famous now, almost everybody's using it. As soon as the product came out, it was, com it was combined with the research. So, you know, you bring the product and you prove straight away that it works extremely well, better than others. And then uh, it was brought on the market. All right. Now, how we did it was with long questionnaires. We had a psychologist uh, uh, who did uh, the whole day, nothing else than seeing these patients and uh, um, um, filling in the questionnaires. And then there was statistics, etc. But you know, as a doctor, you never saw the information in that questionnaire. So I wanted something 
which was short, but still validated. And validated means that it measures what it's supposed to measure. Now, when you have 100 good questions, all right, of course, it's going to be a little bit better. But when you have five questions, which are kind of simple, but you can prove that it's enough, then you have a tool which you can use in your uh, uh, rhinoplasty techniques to compare uh, the quality of the techniques. And that, that's why it's so popular. It was a very small questionnaire. It took me four years to uh, uh, validate it. It was very well done with seven reviewers. They asked me after three years to do the whole thing again so that the redo would also be the same. But as soon as that was uh, uh, proven, and then it was a beautiful tool to publish articles. And then it became uh, uh, nice because for me it was nice because I immediately see on my desk, they fill it in before they come in the, in the office, I immediately see what they think of their nose. And because I know how it's related to others, I say, all right, this and I can make it this much better because my average on that questionnaire on the uh, visual analog scale was five, 4.52. That means if you came in with a rhinoplasty, which was a three, I could say, well, statistically, on average, you are going to have uh, three plus 4.52, a 7.52. But I know, because of my experience, if you are on the good side or on the bad side, for example, when you have a thick skin, then it's like hard to bring them to a 10. But if you have beautiful thin skin and only a little bit moving parts to stabilize the, 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 the profile, then you can sometimes get your 10, you know. And whenever you have something which, which is between 8 or 10, uh, that's a, it, it should be enough because how, what, what is the ideal nose? It's depending on so many things. But at least I had something to show how good I was doing. Uh, and... Um, Later on, my fellow did it, and he had like a, th a 3.5. So he was one point lower, which is kind of normal because he was younger. And then more people started using it because it was validated. It's in Persian, it's in Spanish, I believe, uh, English, uh, um, like five, six, seven languages. So um, right. it's, kind of a, it's kind of a good tool to use. No, it's a, it's an awesome thing. And I know, like, it's part of putting you on this rhino, the, the residence, rhinoplasty residence month in July is, is just how much teaching is such an important part of what you, what you've done. I mean, I know you've published two books as well. Um, tell us about that. Uh, first book was, uh, after I finished the head and neck. So then, um, um, I wrote a book together with Hade Vauk about facial plastic surgery. Uh, at that time in Europe, I think I was the first one who did the uh, European facial plastic surgery exam in Washington that time. So I think uh, that was very new at that time. I started writing books. I started gathering the chapters. Some chapters I saw like 12, 13 times because it was all new. But, you know, in that way also, I learned a lot myself. And um, after four years, we published it. I think now it's, uh, it was printed once. But now there's so many books that it would be ridiculous to do it again because it's completely uh, out of date and the quality uh, became so much higher. Uh, and But that's kind of interesting that in those 20 years that facial plastic surgery became uh, uh, such a steep uh, uh, gradient and it's still moving forward. So it's not that, that we are ending now. It's like getting better and better and better.
That's awesome. So, Peter. And the, and the other in, book was uh, for rhinoplasty because uh, um, um, that was that was one author. So I wrote it myself. And there were all these things in that I wanted to show, like the questionnaire, my results. Uh, Eugene Chardy once told me, he said, all right, if you want to write a book, you have to do at least 10,000 cases. Otherwise, you will not get the material. And that's kind of true. Uh, I, you need a lot of cases in order to get enough material to show enough examples. Uh, I had students to make uh, drawings, etc., uh, etc. Et yes. And how can um, the listeners get hold of those books? Uh, you just Google my name. One uh, one rhinoplasty book is via Googler Publications, googlerpublications.com in the Netherlands. And uh, uh, I'm sure you can still get there the English version and the Spanish version. They're very illustrative. So, Peter, in terms of um, what would your advice be to listeners who want to come and do a fellowship in facial plastic surgery? Uh, well, also that uh, changed because uh, I had to go Norway, London, went to Tony Bull. I went all over the place. But, you know, in the United States already there were like centers where you could learn the full scope as long as you stayed a year. I think I, I was a, a, a director of education from the European Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery. And we kind of developed the system that you could do like four observerships of three months, or you would do one year and then maybe go like eight weeks somewhere else. But at least you had to uh, fill up uh, the year. I think the best is actually to stay somewhere nine months and then choose three months, a specific item for somebody who was world uh, famous, but you know, go to a center where they do it all. Like not only a rhinoplasty, but facelift, reconstruction, uh, skin programs, uh, whatever uh, um, you can think of, because when you can see it all, then you know the full scope, and then you can kind of limit yourself to the things that you like uh, best. Yeah, cool. Okay, so here's a question um, for the residents who are listening. Um, when the patient is coming to the, your room for the first time, for the first time you're going to be examining the patient, taking a history and stuff, for you, what would be the three key items, key items you have to nail in your consultation before surgery of patients? Um, when I see them, what, what I want to know? Yeah, for, for if, if someone's, I'm asking you a question, I'm a resident, I want to start my rhinoplasty career, and I'm saying to you, Prof. Peter Lohaus, you've been around the block, what are the three things that are the most important things I need to concentrate on when I'm seeing the patient for the first time in my room? Okay, well, if, if you mean a, a resident, to, to make a career, then it's the three A's. It's like, you know, you need to have some skill, that's one. You need to have uh, all the knowledge so you can switch during the operation to all the different techniques. And you need to have an artistic feel because that's what with rhinoplasty, it's not for everybody. It's uh, uh, some people just have no feel for how to position this nose in a nice way in the face. And uh, that artistry you kind of have to have uh, by DNA. And otherwise you have to learn it, but it kind of doesn't come so quick. So it's skills and it's uh, knowledge and it's uh, a lot of uh, artistic feeling for the aesthetic rhinoplasties. You know, when you mix up all three, then you get to a uh, 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 next level. And I think also that you just need time because uh, um, 
I've been doing it for such a long time now, and I st I'm still learning. And uh, it, it's really a different kind of surgery. And, and the thing is, there's such a variation in anatomy, but also such a variation in taste. And I have to be careful now what I say, but you know, but now you get via, via Instagram, you get all these really aggressive uh, publications by people who are not that experienced, I think, and have uh, uh, um, well, a, a set of skills which is always the same. And you know, then you get sometimes rhinoplasties will look really funny, which which are irreparable anymore. And that's the the danger now of all these, uh, uh, yeah, education. You know, as soon as you start, and uh, you know how humble you have to be. You know, sometimes it it just will not listen at this uh, this anatomy and this tissue healing. Uh, then you bring a patient into real big troubles. So. Um, I think that you need a certain uh, learning curve together with an experienced surgeon before you start to work on uh, a patient's nose, which is in the center of the face and which he can completely destroy uh, a life. Uh, and I'm serious about that. You know, I've seen, I think 30% of the revisions that I have 30% of what I do is revisions. And these uh, women are suffering and they, 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 for years, they put big makeup, also the guys you know they're really really not happy and insecure about themselves because they they feel maltreated and they understand that it's like hard you know you cannot really blame somebody but at least what you can do is is get well trained in the in the subject and that's not so easy so you you need guidance while you are doing uh, your training so that means that i think you should not do aesthetic rhinoplasty before your residency is open and and maybe even after fellowship and still then you have to re-evaluate your rhinoplasties and try to get better all the time. And that takes effort. No, Peter, I mean, that, that I've got so much respect for that. I mean, you've been in the game for 28 years and just to caution people about it because this, this world we're in now is so Instagram and quick results, et cetera. I mean, this takes years to get there. So th this is a more difficult question in, in this world of rhinoplasty, technically in surgery, what do you find is possibly for you the most challenging uh, or, or most difficult part of the operation? And then kind of next to that, the most satisfying, because often the difficult to get the difficult stuff right gives you greater satisfaction sometimes. But, but, uh, well, <laughs> I don't know, man. The thing is like this, I see it as per case. As soon as I decide to do the surgery, then I kind of feel a responsibility to that patient. All right. If, if it's not doable, I rather don't make the deal. You know what I'm saying? Because I want to be happy as a surgeon too. And some some noses are, can just not be fixed, or you cannot get it what you have in your head or what this patient has in his head. So you know whether it's a primary or a rhino or a revision rhinoplasty, it's just a, a kind of deal that you make together. That's why the consultation is so important. You kind of make the deal together. You say, all right, this is possible. If you want this, well, I'm not going to do it because I don't like it. If guys want a scoop who nose, which you sometimes see, all right, I'm not going to do it. I don't like it. I want to make it a tough nose, a better nose, but a tough nose. And and uh, it, it kind of gives a selection of patients already. And then you kind of end up with patients that like you and trust you. And you have patients which you think have 
reasonable uh, uh, um, ex expectations, and then you kind of go for uh, the surgery. Because I always tell them that there's like one thing you can steer, that is that it must sound logic what my plan is. If it sounds logic to you, what I'm saying, right, then we are on the right highway to uh, Cape Town and not on the highway to Johannesburg and then to Cape Town. You know what I'm saying? It's like completely different. And they kind of get that. And I also uh, need to understand that it depends on the anatomy available, what you can do with the nose. Because you know, you not can get a, 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 a 10, like a small lady. Sometimes they come with pictures. It's just not possible. You get the best out of the nose. And then, you know, when you compare it to other noses, it might be a little bit worse, but at least for, for you, that's the best you can get. And it should look natural. So I don't like the pointy scooped tips with very small bones, uh, uh, with a pointy tip, uh, which sometimes is good, but sometimes is too much. That's just on my style. So what I do is I just show them what, what I like. And I have uh, a website where they can see what my taste is. And then you kind of get your patient selection by itself, which, which you will have as well. Wow. Okay, Peter, I've got two more, two more little topics or questions. The one is, how do you find balance in your life, man? Yes, between publishing your own books and speaking around the world and running a practice and it's all over Europe. And you, how do you keep the resilience going to carry on like you do and yet to remain balanced in what you're doing? Oh, well, what I do is I do a lot of sport. So that's uh, I do a lot of nice things. But what I start doing when I was getting older, I was, I was just cutting things. So I started giving less lectures. So this uh, Zoom was much better. So you don't have to go jet lag, fly. You meet less people. So also I, I always tell my, my uh, business partner, Boris Filipovic, say, right, fame is like a balloon. If you don't keep blowing, you know, it kind of uh, uh, goes down. So you have to kind of keep on uh, um, giving lectures like with you do with the podcast, etc. They have to see your face all the time. Otherwise, it will disappear a little bit, but that's fine. I stopped writing uh, books. I only publish when I publish along, so I correct it, but I don't set up new studies anymore. So uh, you have to kind of uh, um, get selected. That's also the advantage of uh, aging. In the cancer center, we have like two fellows. We have uh, residents. We have uh, we have a fellow in uh, in Zagreb. Um, you get a lot of help, and you don't have to do all the small things uh, anymore which is a kind of a natural process. And um, I think more and more you start uh, creating structure for others to work in and find uh, the best of themselves. So um, now I get older, I appreciate more uh, the residency program in Utrecht that I had. That's why I called it the Utrecht questionnaire because yeah, they created the theater that we were kind of playing on. You know what I'm saying? But it's not so easy to create a theater. You know, we were doing like, I don't know, 70 tracheotomies. Now they, they do like four and uh, we got them all over the place. And uh, I did my first commando alone without supervision when I was in my fourth year. Now that's unthinkable. Yes, because yes. now even with the ear tube, they need like supervision and it all takes time. And it's good, you know, because you have less mistakes, but the whole system is kind of, so uh, uh, paperwork-like uh, that uh, um, 
you cannot really quickly excel anymore. Although the education is much better than in the past, of course. Yeah. Peter, another question I had for you is, I know you do a lot of rhinoplasty and, and like facial plastic stuff, but skin cancers, nasal skin cancers, that's also something that you, you enjoy, eh? Uh, yes. So in the, the cancer center in Amsterdam, we see a lot of uh, skin cancer, a melanoma, a Merkel cell, a basal cell, and usually whatever they uh, don't want to do after most surgery, for example, because they don't have anesthesia, uh, they send to us. And it's kind of uh, really nice as well. We have uh, a prosthesist, so we, they make silicone prosthesis with screws. So we have that available. And uh, what is operable, we operate with uh, inner flaps, cartilage, and uh, usually forehead flaps but also over the whole face, actually, but not only the nose. But it's, that's really kind of nice to do. It's, uh, yeah, it's necessary. And it, those patients are also easier satisfied because the expectations are a little bit lower than with the aesthetic rhinoplasty. That's great. Eh? So, so, Peter, the, the, the listeners don't really know about, we've got a very funny little uh, WhatsApp group, a humor group between the rhinoplasty surgeons just so that the guys can blow off some steam. And I know you, you're quite a good contributor to this group. You, 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 you've got a great sense of humor. So tell the listeners a funny story that's happened in your career. Um, if you can think of one on the spot. Uh, no, really, man. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, I kind of miss the, 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 the meetings. It was kind of always nice that uh, you, you, you saw these colleagues. The COVID kind of really had a big impact on that, man. It's like all the real funny things that you see colleagues and have fun and uh, also know about them uh, other than the medicine is kind of uh, uh, disappearing, but hopefully we will pick that up. So, but I cannot really think of a funny thing, uh, but we, uh, it, there must've been a lot of stories, but I cannot really pick one now. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. So, so Peter, man, thank you. Eh? Um, on behalf of uh, the listeners from around the world, I mean, it's it's fantastic to sit here and listen to you and just be inspired by your journey. Um, again, a shout out to Medtronic for enabling it. Thank you for helping. And and Peter, thank you for your time. Thank you for your your honesty. Thank you for what you've done for so many people. I'm sure that you don't even know the impact of setting up the fellowships. I mean, I, I went and wrote those board exams in Washington three years ago as well. And, um, the, your questionnaire and the book. So thank you. And, uh, yeah, I hope you go from strength to strength. Hey, eh? <laughs> thanks for having me and, uh, good luck with all your shows. 